Father, we ask that you would now come by your Holy Spirit and that you would dwell with us and in us, your people. Make us your dwelling place. Transform our heart by your Holy Spirit through your word. May it show us what we know not and make us what we are not. Make us anew for you. In Jesus we ask. Amen. Well, welcome. Welcome again. We are working through the Gospel of John together. And so you come to us now. We're looking at John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. And if you have a handout today, across the top of the handout, you're going to see the major idea or the big theme for this message and for this passage, which is that Jesus alone can reconcile us and bring us back to God. Or if you want one that's even simpler than that, you can scribble underneath it, Jesus is the true temple. You could just write, Jesus is the true temple. So let's summarize what happened in this passage. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you open and look with me. We're looking at John chapter 2. We're looking at verse 13 through verse 25. In verse 13, we see Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So we have a location change. That's, ha- that's what sets this story off from the last story, even though they are thematically united. But then in verses 14 through 17, we see John's version of an account that is given to us all across the Gospels. Jesus drives out the animals, their merchants, and the money changers that were in the temple, and he calls for a restoration of true piety. Then verses 18 through 21 actually give us the central point of the passage. The Jews said to him, so the Jews said to him, because he did this thing, they say to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the central point of the passage is by what authority does Jesus so act, and with what sign can he demonstrate that he has that authority? It's our way of saying, like, who gives you the right to decide how we worship God. And if you're going to assert that right, you need to prove it. Jesus answers by saying something that is cataclysmic. We don't understand how radical a statement Jesus makes. It borders on a death sentence because he's standing in the temple courts and he says, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. It's a shocking moment. You can imagine the whole entire crowd goes silent when Jesus says this. And then verse 22, we get the lens through which we can view the whole passage. Verse 22 shows us, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. In other words, his disciples in the moment did not understand what was happening. It was after Jesus rose from the dead that they go, oh, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) So when he says, 
when John gives us this, what probably should be in parentheses in verse 21, right? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You could almost put that in parentheses. If you know you're acting, he's breaking the fourth wall. He's sort of stepping out and saying, but he was speaking about his body. Like, it's this thing that's not immediately available in the moment. So the passage makes sense when it's viewed through the lens of the cross of Jesus. And if you were here last week, you know that that's the exact same lens that we had to look through to make sense of the wedding at Cana. It was when Jesus discerned a connection between a marriage feast and his crucifixion that he decided to enact this great miracle. And here, Jesus discerns a connection between his sacrifice on the cross and the real restoration of the true temple of God. And that becomes the sign. So to kick off our thoughts today, before I dig into the context... Some churches, maybe you were even part of a church, that refers to its main gathering area as a sanctuary. Do you know what word sanctuary means? Just take a moment. Think in your head. Be like, what does sanctuary mean? Sanctuary is a place that you can run to for safety. It also means a holy place, so sometimes people refer to it that way. Why do we have the first connotation, though? The reason we have the first connotation is because of a special privilege that existed in the temple or in the tabernacle of God, specifically at the horns of the altar. If you wanted mercy, you could run to the horns of the altar and cast yourself on them. We have an account of it in 1 Kings. And you would cast yourself by doing this on the Lord's mercy. You'd say, in essence, the idea originally in Scripture was that you didn't believe that you had done the thing that you were accused of. But it could extend all the way up to you had done the thing that you were accused of, but you desperately wanted protection from God. There's a whole bunch of things about what you'd have to do after that. But the point is, you could find safety at the temple of the Lord. You could find mercy in the household of God. We now enshrine that in terms of We call certain cities sanctuary cities. The idea of sanctuary is still held within our community. That's because this idea of temple is really important. So, big point B, context. Why does the temple matter? Why does the temple matter? Well, the short answer is the temple represents humans' need to meet with and be reconciled to God. The temple represents our need to meet with God, and to be reconciled to God. A temple is a place where humans and God can meet. That's what a temple is. So where does the idea of temple come from, particularly in terms of Scripture? Well, the temple, simply put, is a response to the broken relationship between God and man. Do you remember what happens after Adam and Eve have sinned against God, And he pronounces the curse against the world and against us. What does he do then? He kicks Adam and Eve out of Eden, right? And he sets 
of flaming cherubim to guard the way so that they cannot, you know, having been kicked out, be like, well, that was actually a pretty good place. I'm going to go back. No, you can't go back. There is an irreparable separation set between us and God. Temple is the idea that we needed that. Temple is things were right when Adam was walking in the cool of the garden in the cool of the day and the Lord walked with him. That's the way things should be, but they're not that way now. We need something to point to getting back to Eden. That is what temples are about. So because of sin, Adam was cut off from God's presence. We see that in Genesis 3, 8 and verses 23 through 24. Ever afterwards, we have sought either an audience with God or the benefits that come from having an audience with God. You can think of the prophets of Baal dancing in a frenzied way on the Mount Carmel, trying to make God come down and do something. They want the benefits of having an audience with God. They will cut themselves to do it. They will sing to do it. They will dance. They will make hopeful offerings to him. Or we can think about wanting to secure its benefits. We see that across Scripture. We want the things that come from being with God. We want safety. We want provision. We want the glory of God. We want a sense of home. Think of those that built the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, verse 4, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They want what comes as a result of being with God. So how does this idea, because we got the idea, we got kicked out of Eden, we want to go back to Eden, that's what temple's all about. How does this idea get developed across Scripture? First we see altars, right? Altars are built in Genesis, and altars do what? They commemorate a place where God came and met with man. Every time the patriarchs built an altar, like, that's to remind me of the time that God showed up. He said this thing. It was pretty cool. We think of Jacob's vision. We can think of even all the way up to when Israel crosses the Jordan. As soon as they get to the other side, what do they do? They build an altar saying, this is where God met with us. Then we see that that altar, as a theme, develops into a tabernacle, right? When God draws his people out of Egypt, he prescribes to them a massive tent so that they have a way to be reconciled to him and to remain with him. Then when they enter the land and they inherit the promise of God, that is when they build the temple, a permanent place where they could, hopefully, always go and meet with God. It reflects the initial And it signifies the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to establish his people in his kingdom. When Israel came into the land, they built the temple and it was like, see, God said that he would give us a land, he would make us a people, and he would dwell with us forever. Boom, here it is. But there's a problem, right? See, in the prophets, especially Isaiah, we find that God warns his people not to depend on the physical temple itself but rather on his covenant faithfulness. He commands them to trust in the thing that the temple was supposed to point to. He says, you need to trust in the stone that the builders rejected. And in the exile, in a chapter that always makes me cry, so I'm not going to read it, 
the temple is destroyed. And God's presence symbolically departs from it. Ezekiel, who is already in exile, has the worst dream that any one of us could ever have. A vision of the holy, loving, kind, good presence of God rising up from the place that it has dwelt and leaving. It's such a powerful vision that even after the exile, even when Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, significantly the presence of God does not come back to it. This is something that's so well known amongst the rabbis, they even talk about it. They knew that the temple that they had built, Herod's temple, was in effect a sham. The Shekinah glory of the holy God was not in it. It was both symbolically and literally empty. They did not rebuild the vessels that were taken off. They didn't rebuild most of the things that were in it. It was a hollow home. And that's likely what John had in mind here. That's probably the mindset that John had. He had seen this amazing development of theme from us losing our home with God in Eden to having altars, to having the tabernacle, to having the temple, to being cast into exile and losing that promise. And now all the people were hungering. When, when, O oh Lord, are you going to restore yourself to us and us to you? Now, if we look ahead from here, we can see that this, this trajectory in Scripture is pointing to a really great end, right? If we go to John's vision of Christ later in his life, he sees a heavenly temple. God with the saints awaiting the restoration of all things. If you want to read about that, go to Revelation 7, 11, and 14 through 16. It's this amazing vision that culminates in the last scene in Revelation 21, verse 22, in the new creation where we are told there is no temple. <laughs> because the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple of God's people. So the big arc of Scripture goes from the brokenness at Eden and brings us back to Eden. God's good purpose is to restore all things. Another element of this trajectory that we know as Christians and what we believe as Christians is that the temple is expressed specifically in Christian living. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 speaks about this, that when God gives us new birth, God indwells our heart by his Holy Spirit, and that we are to avoid polluting our nefesh, our physical, spiritual being, with sin. Because it is God's dwelling place. Because God meets with men here. So we have to leave off at, so how did the Jews see the second temple. Many of, many of us already know this. They, they saw this temple, the physical building that they were looking at when Jesus was standing there, that place, they saw it as anticipating the restoration, which they saw as largely political, of the Messiah 
and their reconciliation to God after the exile. In essence, they were all standing there going, someday the Messiah is going to show up and he's going to walk into this temple and that's when the Shekinah glory of God is going to re-indwell the temple. When he walks in, and thus far we're like, yes, we're with you. There was just that little bit of, and when he comes to the temple, he's going to come with an army and we're going to take over everybody else and he's going to look around at us, all us faithful people who have been waiting patiently for him to come, we're going to say, good job, guys. Thanks for waiting so long. I know it's taken me a bit, but... Let's go lay some smack down. And so the Pharisees are sitting there going like, we need to increase our own understanding as a nation of the, of the holiness of God to prepare for his Messiah coming. But when he comes, he's going to recognize us. He's going to look at us and be like, you are my peeps. And we are just going to do this. The Essenes, another more radical group, thought, nah, the Pharisees, they aren't anywhere near hardcore enough. We need to be way more hardcore than them. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to look at us and he's going to say, you guys are my peeps and we're going to do the thing. <laughs> it was a physical sign to them of God's perpetual covenant blessing and presence. And as a consequence, to speak against the temple was to blaspheme against God. And this is why when you read in all the Gospels that one of the accusations that's brought against Jesus is he spoke against the temple. He said he'd destroy it. Because that's a capital crime. This is a big deal. So, big point C, we should understand what Jesus actually did. What did he do? What was the sign? And that's the question that pervades this whole thing, because clearly the Jews have in mind one idea of what the sign is, and Jesus has a different idea of what the sign is. So, what's the sign? Jesus cleansed the temple to signify how his life and death would render the sacrificial system obsolete and in order to expose empty piety and call for genuine repentance and faith. To a certain extent, if you've been on this train since we started in John 1, this isn't new news. It's just another way of looking at the same idea. Jesus cleansed the temple to say, my sacrifice is the only and final and ultimate sacrifice. It's the one that's going to render all former sacrifices obsolete. And by doing that, that exposes the empty piety of the Pharisees. In essence, he was saying, all of your ritual preparation for the Messiah isn't actual preparation for the Messiah. You aren't ready for me because you don't want to repent. So, first, Jesus cleansed the temple to call for repentance. Why did he cleanse the temple? Cleanse the temple to call for repentance. Jesus did object to unethical dealings. If you read the other gospel accounts like Luke 19 verses 45 through 47, you'll see, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So the, in the gospels, we normally see Jesus concerned with the unethical business practices, as it were, that are going on in the temple. And it's true, he did object to them. But John's gospel wants to emphasize a bigger problem. John's gospel wants us to notice that Jesus was chiefly concerned with the root of that mercantilistic behavior, empty piety and false worship. 
Mark even points at it. We don't have time today to explain how truthfully. So it was legal. Let's, let's start here. It was legal. It was even convenient that animals, their dealers, and temple tax collectors and money changers would be present. Jews from all over the Roman world came to Jerusalem to make sacrifice. You had to have money changers there. There are dudes walking up with money you have never seen before. They got to get the temple shekel. Well, there's only way to do that. You got to have a money changer. It's legal. It's legal to sell them animals. You couldn't expect somebody to keep a pigeon alive from Rome if they made the, the pilgrimage all the way to the Passover feast. No, they, they're going to buy them when they get there. So they had those provided there. It was all legal. Jesus drives them out to reveal how they were a tangible expression of polluted worship. That they had made God's house of prayer into a house of robbery. Probably the robbery that's spoken about in Malachi. The attempt to take from God what's his, specifically his righteousness, and make it our own. What should be holy here has become vulgar. So, yes, he cleansed the temple to call for repentance. He was telling the people, your approach to God is not right because your heart is not right. Not because you shouldn't be exchanging money. Not because you shouldn't be offering sacrifices. No, your heart is not right. Secondly, Jesus deliberately impedes the sacrificial system as a sign of its coming fulfillment in his death and resurrection. We get that specifically in Mark 11, where he says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And here he impedes it as well. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. The, the substances of their sacrificial system, he expulged. He expunged. Jesus is signifying that he is the object of true worship and foreshadowing that he will replace that sacrificial system once and for all. See, to impede the sacrificial system in any way was to say, I can do this better than you, as it were. And in essence, Jesus is saying, I am what this points to. Stop it with the sheep and goats. If you want to read more about that, look at Hebrews 5 and 8 through 10, where Jesus claims that he is the great and final priest, that he is the great and final sacrifice, and that he consequently is the great and final temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. Jesus claims to be the only necessary and only sufficient sacrifice. There is nothing you can do or bring to God apart from Jesus that God will find acceptable or which will appease his wrath. And to say otherwise, to assume that there is some other way to God, either alongside of or around of Jesus, is to imply that we do have something that could appease God's wrath, that we have some standing by which we could make an appeal or some grounds to enter his holy presence when we are still outlaws. You know what the word outlaw originally meant? It didn't just mean somebody who was cool. <laughs> it meant someone who was outside the law. You see, 
in the original mind of framing the law in the Western world, the law was given to protect you. It was a good thing. It's, it's what said that somebody couldn't come over to your house, stab you, and take that cup that they always wanted. Like, they can't do that. Why can't they do that? Because the law says they can't do that. What will happen to them if they do that? Whatever the law tells will happen to them. To be outside the law meant that you were outside the protection of the law. It meant that anyone could do anything they wanted to you and they would get no punishment because the law was not extended to you. So when Robin Hood is made an outlaw by Prince John, he is literally saying anybody can do whatever they want to Robin. They can kill him, they can take his stuff, they can beat on him, they can do whatever they want. I will not protect Robin. Robin is not under my law anymore. Friends, when we disobeyed God, we became outlaws. But the Jews miss both the sign and its significance. They miss the sign and they miss what it meant. Big point D, bad faith blinds us to truth and betrays a hard heart. Now, when I say bad faith, I mean like, have you ever heard of a bad faith argument? An argument made in bad faith. Someone who is deliberately trying, as it were, to misunderstand the situation. Bad faith blinds us to truth and betrays a hard heart. We're going to examine how verse 18 betrays the Jews' bad faith and their empty piety. The temple cleansing was the sign, and the cross was the object. Get used to this when we're in the Gospel of John. Regularly, people will ask Jesus to perform a sign to prove something that he just said when he, when he did that already. <clears throat> in this case, he cleanses the temple. That's the sign. The Jews come to him and say, show us a sign to prove that you can cleanse the temple. Jesus is like, that. <laughs> that, that was the sign. So they miss the sign, and it... Why? Why do they miss the sign? Well, because bad faith is going on. Bad faith betrays a hard heart. Look at verses 24 through 25. I think this is connected. He says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Well, who are the them? Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, John is probably the most expansive understanding of what faith looks like of any of the Gospels. It's variegated. It's contextualized with doubt. We've already talked about this a little bit. So there's a whole bunch of people that see Jesus do this and they believe in him. And you're going to have to create a category for people who say they're going to follow Jesus, but they're not really following Jesus. Who say they believe in him, but they don't actually trust in him. Who are doing something that approximates it, but it isn't the thing. And Jesus knows their heart and he just, he won't disclose himself to them because he knows our hearts. We are deceitful. Bad faith betrays a hard heart. Bad faith will not accept or receive answers that it doesn't want. The Jews are not asking Jesus genuinely for a sign. The hard truth is that they are challenging him. 
See, in verse 18, one of the things that you don't see in the English, and this is one of those few times I'm going to try and drag the Greek out on you, is there's a repetition. So the Jews said to him, if I were being literal, if you hear then also he answered them. So the Jews said to him this in verse 19, Jesus answered them. That repetition there, that's a formula for a challenge. They don't, they're not genuinely asking him this question. They're saying, in essence, rhetorically, you don't have the authority to do this. So prove it. Convince me, because I'm not convinced. I'm convinced of the opposite. We're about ready to kill you, so, so come up with something real quick before we do that. We can see this all across the other Gospels. One example would be Mark 8, 11. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven and saying to him. It's the, when, when, when you stack up these phrases like they said, they asked, they, it's a challenge. It's not an honest question. This behavior begins a precedent and it betrays bad faith, demanding miraculous proof rather than responding to the truth that God gives us. Thus, the unbelieving heart is not just reluctant towards faith, it is recalcitrant. It's not that they don't, they're, they're uncertain of it or they're frightened about it. They don't want it. They don't want the implication of what Jesus says. And in this way, bad faith blinds us to the truth. We can note that even the disciples only understand the significance of this after Jesus' death and resurrection. In verses 17 and 22, we see that. In 17, his disciples remembered that it was written. Looking back on it, they go, oh, yeah, that, that bit, zeal for your house is consuming. He's fulfilling a messianic prophecy. Whoa! <laughs> and then verse uh, 22 as well, his disciples remembered that he had said this after he'd been raised from the dead. So we know that even the disciples are standing around looking at Jesus going, are, are we about to all get killed because of you? Like, I sure hope you know what you're doing because this is scary. And they're not quite sure what he's doing because they had in their mind, like, yeah, that's the Messiah. When the Messiah goes to the temple, that's when the fun starts happening. That's when the beatdown occurs and we're here and we're ready. He's going to say, thanks for waiting, guys, and off we go. Why isn't he going and why is he stopping the temple sacrifice? What are you saying, Jesus? Without honest faith, peering through a gospel-shaped lens, Jesus' words and signs are ultimately either unintelligible or unbearable to a hard, sinful heart. Friend, without honest faith, peering through a gospel-shaped lens, Jesus' words and signs are either ultimately unintelligible, meaning they don't make sense to you, or they're unbearable, meaning you get them, but you don't like them, to a hard and sinful heart. The Jews miss the sign entirely. In verse 18, they ask for a sign to prove the sign. Why? Well, there's two explanations. One is there is no explicit answer until John chapter 5. This is a theme that John develops across the gospel, and I don't want to spoil all my thunder right now, so, or not my thunder, but I don't want to spoil John's thunder right now. We see a pattern of demanding miracles and rejecting discipleship. Jesus more or less says, 
follow me, trust me, and they say, prove to me that I should trust you. (laughs) And Jesus exposes the root, which is that really deep down, the reason that they are doing this is that they don't trust God's word and they don't want his righteousness. It culminates in John chapter 5, verse 46, where Jesus accuses them and says, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. To a Pharisee, that's almost a nonsense statement, right? They're sitting there going, I do believe Moses. I have built my entire life around believing Moses. What do you mean I don't believe Moses? No. No, they do know. They know what Jesus is asking of them. They don't want to give it to him. They are in love with their own glory, and they are deaf to God's grace. It kind of depends on how you look at the situation, right? So, like, using our outlaw illustration. We all know Robin Hood and Prince John. It's a little mythologized for our history majors here. I'm not going to press this too hard. But in the myth, right, Robin Hood knows who the real king is, right? Who's the real king? Richard the Lionhearted. And he's waiting for King Richard to come back. Now, who does Prince John think is the king? Prince John. Prince John thinks Prince John is the king, and this is why Prince John does what Prince John does. And the fact that Robin Hood thinks that Richard is the king is why Robin Hood does what Robin Hood does, right? Everything Robin Hood does goes through the lens of Richard is the real king. He wouldn't want these subjects to be treated this way. He wouldn't want this law to be put in place. He wants us to bring him back. You know, everything that Robin Hood does goes through the lens of who the real king is. Friend, this is a fundamental paradigm for how you interact with the gospel. If you, if you come to this book going, I know who the real king is, it makes sense. <laughs> but if you come to this book saying, I know who the real king is, this book is not going to make sense. Jesus will provide sign after sign, wonder after wonder, teaching after teaching, but you will not accept it because you've got the wrong king. They would rather God supply them miraculous proof than convict them of sin. Just take a moment and think about that. They would rather have God work a miracle than them repent. They like like remembering things like fire falling from heaven but they forget the apostasy that invited it. Remember why fire fell from heaven in 1 Kings? It's because Israel had given up on following God. That's why. And they're sitting there going, we want to see the fire. And God's like, context. The reason the fire fell is because you weren't following me in the first place. They would rather ignore One of the great Advent passages, Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and full of compassion. Rend your hearts, not your garments. They are unwilling to change how they sacrifice. Sorry, they are not unwilling to change how they sacrifice animals. They're unwilling to repent. And ultimately, they are unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah that they so desperately need simply because Jesus is not the Messiah they want. And friend, that's a hard question that you have to ask yourself. If you don't know Christ or if you're struggling to know Christ or 
you're wondering about this gospel, you need to ask yourself whether or not your rejection of Jesus is simply, Jesus is not the Messiah I want. Because the Bible doesn't present Jesus to you as the Messiah that you want. It presents him as the Messiah you need. Ultimately, he becomes the Messiah you want. So let's understand Jesus' answer, big point E. Jesus answers them. He answers their bad faith by saying that he is the true temple. In verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The sign that Jesus gives, metaphorically to them, he's very gracious, he actually gives them a sign, right? He gives them a sign, they say, where's the sign? And then he gives them the sign. And the sign is, he'll rise from the dead. The reason that Jesus can cleanse the temple, the reason he can stop the sacrificial system, the reason that he can throw out everyone from it, the reason that he gets unilateral authority to define how and when and under what conditions a human being can encounter the living, holy God is because he is that God. He is the true object of all worship and because only his sacrifice can produce saving faith. So Jesus' resurrection then authenticates all his words and signs. Whenever we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but I need you to prove it to me, Jesus always gives the same answer. I will rise from the dead. Friend, you cannot underestimate how immensely critical the historical belief of the, of the church is that Jesus Christ physically lived on this physical earth in a historical timeline. He was executed. He died on a cross. He laid in a grave for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the dead physically. It is no small thing to begin to play with that doctrine to say, oh, well, the disciples just, they, they felt like he was with them so much that they imagined as though he were, no, Christianity rises or falls by Jesus' own words on one singular event that he, the only man ever, rose from the dead. If you've never taken the resurrection seriously, or if you are looking through Scripture and, and you're finding doubts, like, well, what about this one and the way it talks with this bit? Or what about this bit and this bit? Friend, the, you're, you're coming at it, I humbly suggest to you, the wrong way. The better question is, did Jesus or did Jesus not physically rise from the dead? If he did, every one of his words stands authenticated by his own claim. And from his words authenticates all of Scripture. Friend, work backwards. The deepest question in a Christian's heart is, do I really believe that God really raised Jesus from the dead? Because if Jesus is really raised from the dead, then externalized religion, religions of dead works, like Hebrews 9.14 talks about, are useless. They will not help you. Only genuine faith, only a living relationship in Jesus can bring us back to God. There is no temple on earth that can bring you one hair closer to God. We could build the greatest cathedral. We can have the best music. You could have the best preacher. You could have all the things. It's not a temple. It can't bring you one inch closer to God. Only Jesus can do that. 
The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the ultimate meeting and reconciling place between us and God. That is why the church is called the church. We are called the ecclesia. That means the called out ones. And when we gather together at the ecclesia, that is where the Lord is manifest amongst his people. Friend, if you are in Christ, you are always in the temple of God. Always. No matter if they put you in a prison, you are in the temple of God. And the Spirit abides with you. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the ultimate meeting and reconciling place. In Jesus, we truly know God. We see him as God's exact image, as Colossians tells us. In Jesus, we have confidence to enter God's presence, as Hebrews tells us. He is everything and more to us than what the literal temple was to the Jews. So let's apply the sign and wrap this up. We need to be reconciled to God through Jesus' life and death. You walking home today, what's the main point of this passage? You need to be reconciled to God through Jesus' life and death. You need to come and meet God, encounter him in the temple that is Jesus Christ. To be reconciled to God, to be restored to Eden, we must participate in Jesus. We have to have a share in Jesus. We have to be in Jesus. We can only know and be reconciled to and have confidence of God's favor through Jesus. Just the way the temple was a sign of God's covenant blessing upon the people of Israel, Jesus is that sign for us. Jesus says, like, sorry, the Apostle Paul says, look back at the resurrection of Jesus. That's your confidence that he's going to raise you from the dead. Remember, God raised him from the dead. He's coming back. All the hopes and all the wishes that Christians have rest on, did Jesus rise from the dead? If the answer is yes, we have hope. He is and must be our only and ultimate sacrifice for sin. He must be our only grounds for standing before Almighty God. Secondly, to understand God's word, we have to read the Bible through the lens of the gospel. That's what the Pharisees did wrong here. They missed the point. They read the Bible through the lens of their own righteousness, right? They're looking like a Messiah does come back to vindicate my righteousness. He will come to the temple to vindicate my righteousness. And he will establish a new system there to vindicate my righteousness. Everything that the Messiah was going to do and did, they saw through the lens of, you know, to say that I did it right. If you look at through a gospel lens, you say, I didn't do it right. The Messiah is coming to do what I couldn't do. The Messiah is coming to provide what I could never give. The Messiah is coming to establish a kingdom that I could never enter without him. He's coming to get me and build his kingdom and put me in it. So thirdly, reform follows, but it does not precede repentance. One of the implications of this passage is that the road to renewal in our individual lives is paved by honest and humble faith and not by our own bootstraps. Christians don't say to other people, clean up your life so that I can bring you to Jesus. Right? We say, come to Jesus Jesus is the only one that can clean up your life. My life was pretty messed up until I met Jesus. My life is still messed up, but Jesus is working on me. Reform does not precede repentance. Repentance precedes reform. 
The Pharisees are sitting there going, guys, if you want the Messiah to show up, you need to clean up your act. And God's good purpose in all of human history was not to wait for us to clean up our act, but to send his Messiah. Praise be to God. We live then and wait for that new creation by honoring God with our whole being. We live and wait for the new creation by honoring God in our whole being. We should treat our whole being with the reverence of knowing that if you believe in Jesus Christ, God dwells in you. You are his ambassador. You are his messenger. Numerous commands in the New Testament flow out from this, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but we can think of things like where Paul says, I discipline my body. I bring it under control in 1 Corinthians 9 so that I will not be uh, proved to be false as a minister. It means that there's, there's a part of the way we deal with ourselves and the way we deal with our lives that needs to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or we can think of Romans 12, 1 through 3, where he says, you are therefore a living sacrifice. This is your acceptable worship. Your whole entire life is your acceptable worship to God. Every aspect of it. We can't compartmentalize our Christianity and be like, well, I do the Christian thing here, but not here. No, Jesus is your king. Of everything, you ought to be like Robin Hood. I do everything because of who the king is. <laughs> we can think of 1 Timothy 4.8 where he says, Bodily training is of some value, but what? Godliness is of value in every way. The aim of everything we do with our body, with our diets, with our children, with our schooling, with our everything we do should be pointed towards that I would glorify God in my life. That this is a meeting place between God and man. Oh, friend. The bad news is that hearts hardened by sin are blind and deaf to the words and signs of God, right? That's the bad news. The good news is that God's grace is stronger than the bonds of sin. By God's grace, we learn to look through the lens of his gospel to see his Messiah slain for sinners and raised for their justification. By God's grace, we come to see ourselves as sinners and in desperate need of such a Savior. I'm going to spoil a little bit of chapter 3 just to give you hope because I talk badly about the Pharisees all the time, right? One such Pharisee comes next chapter, right? And he comes and he talks with Jesus and he's like, so Jesus... What do I got to do? And she's like, you got to be born again. He's like, I have no idea what you are talking about. And by chapter 7, we see that he's beginning to shift, right? Nicodemus is in a council, and he's like, are you sure that we condemn a dude without actually having, like, a, you know, trial and things? And everyone's like, shut up, Nicodemus. You know? And by the end of the Gospel of John, where is Nicodemus? He goes, and he's like, I want to bury him. He is my Messiah. He is my King. Oh, friend, just because a Pharisee standing here didn't get it doesn't mean he's never going to get it. <laughs> God's grace is stronger than the bonds of sin. He can change your heart and show you his Messiah. When we cry out for God's help, we find the arms of Jesus open wide because he's the temple of God. He is where a sinner becomes a saint. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word.
And oh God, bring us into the temple of your son, Jesus Christ. May we be buried with him by baptism into his death and raised with him in his resurrection into new and everlasting life. So fill us with your Holy Spirit that we become sanctified vessels, vessels cleansed from dishonorable use and put to honorable use that we would carry about in our body the living and the dying of Jesus Christ so that everyone would see God is a great God. He saves sinners through a greater Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.